Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. I want to see science serve a useful purpose to improve the standard of living for all people. Why is anyone fighting food advance? A very small percentage of the world's population is fortunate enough to have the luxury of turning down food. We've arranged a society based on science and technology. There was nobody understands anything about science and technology. You can't build a peaceful world on empty stomachs and human misery. You're listening to Talking Biotech, a weekly podcast illuminating issues in agricultural and medical biotechnology. Your questions and concerns are addressed using a science-based approach with the goal of driving discovery to application with communication. Now here's your host, Dr. Kevin Folta. Well, not exactly Kevin Folta. This is Vern Blazik on the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the WikiLeaks podcast where we discuss contemporary issues in science and technology with a focus on biotechnology and new and innovative concepts that can help people and the planet. And today it's a little bit different episode. We've been receiving quite a few comments from listeners like you saying that it's time for another question and answer show. So, We've compiled your questions using Facebook and our email address at TalkingBiotech at gmail.com to get together a number of questions that we'll answer here. And uh, I'll be reading those to Kevin. Kevin, what do you think? Well, I think that's great. Um, All good. But I think we have to do one thing first today. And I wanted to give an update on the corn experiment. So going back a long time now, about a year and a half, We initiated a citizen science project where we solicited for funding, asking people to donate so that we could get corn, either genetically engineered corn or its isogenic equivalent, to uh, people all over the United States and even some to Canada. And uh, the idea was to test the hypothesis that's been put forth by Don Huber, Dr. Don Huber, and other anti-GMO folks, and it's all over the internet, that animals will not touch genetically engineered corn. And we thought this would be the basis of a very good hypothesis to test scientifically. So we got those equivalent comparable strains. We, um, uh, actually we, Carl Haro von Mogel, uh, went through a painstaking process of assembling the kits and putting everything together and mailing them out, hundreds of them. And um, we got data back slowly. Uh, this was distributed in November of 26, 2015, and we got data back. We were still waiting for people to send in their pictures as uh, recently as June of last year, July of last year. Uh, in August, I received all the images, and I started working through the images and trying to figure out a way to digitize 
and uh, use digital methods to be able to measure how much an animal consumed. So you would have a corn cob at the beginning and a corn cob 24 hours later. And you would see how much was consumed in that time. The problem is, is that nobody used any kind of standardization. And we have images that were taken at different angles, maybe one side of the corn versus the other, um, where things were switched around, where it was close and far. It was uh, There's no easy way to stack a before and after image and simply eliminate the part that was um, consumed electronically. And I went through a lot, a lot on this. I spent a huge amount of time on it. So we finally went to a different approach, and uh, we uh, got together a crack team of uh, students and others where we performed a, uh, we used a, like a scale that was devised and uh, by Anastasia Bodnar. She gave this nice little scale that showed the different degrees of what it would represent. You know, if it was eaten this far, it would be 40%. And we trained a group to hit it accurately. So in other words, I would measure some uh, manually and get numbers, and then we would train the group until they were able to achieve those numbers within a little bit of error. And so once we were able to train a group, we were able to go through a substantial number of these and average the estimates of many people. And it turns out that they do match. When you go back and analyze them manually, they match very well. So it looks like we worked our way around that problem, and uh, the results in the paper should be coming out very soon. And I won't say what we found. So well, let's go back to the questions, which is the words of today. Um, the questions came in. Yeah, I, I didn't really look at them very much. It's... Uh, it is much more fun to do them cold, so let's oh, well, go. Well, you uh, did reply to one of them yesterday. I saw that on their uh, online. Well, yeah, yeah, I, I did like the first one. I just went to check to see if we even had any. <laughs> that would have made for a short show. <laughs> All right, let's go for it and uh, cue some question-answering music. Go for it. With a significant proportion of vegetables left unsold... Due to variations in appearance, affecting appeal, but not taste and nutritional value, can we use molecular engineering methods to limit phenotypic variability? And that question comes from Yuli. Uh, yeah, thanks, Yuli. That's a good question, and it really goes back to the 1990s when we had the Flavor Saver Tomato. That was the exact strategy. The idea was to prevent softening, which would damage a fruit, uh, and allow it to ripen fully, which means you would start the ripening cascade and all the events that would deliver or would develop uh, the flavors and aromas without uh, causing the softening that would leave the tomato more vulnerable to damage and decay. And it's entirely possible to do a much better job at this today. Uh, not only do we have more knowledge of the genes involved in post-harvest decay, we also have better genetics to install those genes into. So we have better tomatoes from the start that could receive those genes. And we also know many more genes um, and probably could come up with some better strategies in that first tomato effort. And I'd say that could be extended to just about any crop. 
It's uh, really important because about 50% of food is never makes it to the table. And um, that's really sad. And I think improvements in our uh, post-harvest quality of fruits and vegetables, whether it's by genetic engineering or simply by using other post-harvest methods, which may have improved a lot in the last 20 years, um, they can really ensure that we're getting the food that's grown to the people who want to consume it. Our uh, next question comes from Jacob. I hear a lot of claims that organic cotton urges vastly less water and cotton compared to conventional MGM. Is this also the case on a large industrial scale, and what other factors should be considered with regards to this? Wow, that's that's a good question. I, you know, unfortunately, I don't know that much about cotton. Um, it's probably one of my weak spots because I focus mostly on food things. But cotton is uh, it's a water-intensive crop. We uh, know that we use about 70% of water in agriculture and about probably, I don't know, somewhere a significant amount of that goes to cotton. So probably, you know, 2 to 3% to cotton. And um, the thing about cotton is that it takes so much water to produce a small amount of the fiber. Because you can think of the fiber being just a little fuzz on the seed. Think about how much of the plant you have to support to produce that. So it takes like, uh, you know, thousands and thousands of liters to make a a kilogram of cotton. And uh, in the United States, most of the cotton is grown in the southeast. And you don't need any kind of irrigation or any kind of uh, uh, special water uh, arrangements. It's grown basically just on rain. Um, But uh, out southwest, you do have to have irrigation, but that's pretty efficient. And whether it's organic or conventional in the southeast, they're using uh, drip, they're using other types, meaning that they put water right at the base of the plant, drip it in rather than spraying over the top. And that saves quite a bit too. Some of the places where you're seeing a real push for organic cotton because of its higher value is in places like Pakistan where you don't have a lot of uh, synthetic resources. And so you can generate, um, and labor's cheap, so you can generate organic cotton there. And you do weed control by hoeing. Uh, you can use raw manures, I believe, because you're not it's not a food product. So you, there's no health risk there. Um, so there, there's some ways that you can uh, you can do organic very efficiently. It still doesn't produce very much, but uh, you can't use defoliants, which are important uh, in conventional production to get rid of the leaves and leave just the cotton cotton exposed for harvest. And in uh, places like Pakistan, it's all done by hand. It's all hand harvested. But um, one of the best things that's coming up is I've actually heard about this uh, cotton reclamation. You can actually take old t-shirts and old cotton products and have them recycled into new ones. And so you can imagine the number of uh, President Hillary t-shirts that went into, oh, is it too soon? Don't look at me like that. I heard the next question comes from Debbie, and she says, I heard you mention in a previous podcast that organic sugar beet farmers are having to pay $1,200 an acre to weed by hand, since they don't use Roundup. Are none of them using organic herbicides? And if they did, what would they be using, and how does the toxicity stack up against Roundup? 
Yeah, that's a good question, Deb. Yeah, um, you know, it's uh, there really is no practical solution with respect to an organic herbicide. Um, there are some things that are approved. You can use things like a corn gluten meal or uh, mustard meal. So there's uh, these compounds that are especially the mustard meal high in glucosinolates that are shown to have some effect it like as a pre-emergent so you mix that into the soil and it kind of keeps uh keeps things at bay but once the plants are out um, there are some approved compounds like things like vinegar or acetic acid you can use that to uh, spray on weeds that'll work um, there's issues like um, clove oil um, uh, ammonium uh, non-anoate is another one uh, those are all okay, but if you think about the cost and practicality, it's almost impossible to really recommend those on an industrial scale, like for sugar beets. Um, there were some other good ones. Um, they used to have a, um, oh, what was the stuff? There was that compound that was uh, um, uh, a uh, uh, pelargonic acid. I think it was. It's one that is in some formulations of Roundup, but pelargonic acid uh, was at one time approved for organic, I think, but was removed from organic because I think it is synthesized. Um, but it would have been great. Showed lots of promise, uh, potentially. So really what you're stuck with are other methods. And so some things that are being done, um, really it's manual labor, right? It's people with hose. Um digging up weeds and it's uh, backbreaking work and it's expensive so $1,200 per acre was was the amount for sugar beets um, one that uh, some of my colleagues have been using is flaming where you actually have a uh, basically a small flamethrower that you just burn them and even uh, a short treatment is enough to kill them um, that seems to work okay but then again you're generating carbon dioxide and all kinds of other goodies um, the future is looking good for this, though, because there are, are machines that now can use machine vision to identify weeds. So you can have basically a robot walk over the field and be able to differentiate crop from weed because of where it's placed and what it looks like. And uh, these kinds of machines can then manually destroy or remove the weed. I think that's going to be a big part of things in the future, and and actually will be a really good move for both conventional and um, organic agriculture. So, pretty exciting. The next question comes from Adam. It is still too early to bring me on to talk about my outreach project. In the meantime, could you touch on the subway lab results? I have my suspicions... But I like it when you verify when my suspicions are correct. <laughs> I, I like when I sus <laughs> confirm when my suspicions are correct. Well, let's start with that. Really, what you should be doing is challenging your suspicions to make sure they're wrong. Um, then we do the most stringent tests. But let's talk about the subway test. I think this comes from a recent story that they say that there was um, like subway chicken was fifty uh, percent. Uh, something else like soy and everything else but I think the reality is it was much lower than that I don't I didn't really pay much attention to the story sorry the next question comes from Jerry it's a well-known fact that most foods have been drastically altered from their wild counterparts I'm curious to know 
Are there any foods that we eat today that are not needed to be modified? Wow, that's a great question. I just taught this class this week, and uh, I, I'm really excited about this question. Many different parts. So starting with, we've eaten, or we eat probably about 150 different plants and plant products. Not that many. And that's if you really go out on the edges. I mean, most people are eating probably 20 different plant products in their lives. Um, but if we go way out, we can eat maybe 150. And all of those were domesticated a long time ago. And they were domesticated in major population centers throughout the world, really seven areas that Nikolai Vavilov, a famous botanist, described that uh, were the major sources or major regions of domestication. Um, if you think about it, things like uh, rice and wheat, uh, corn, that's like a huge part of the diet. I would or a huge part of the calories in the world. Probably 60-70% of the calories consumed are in those three crops alone. So what is close? What has had little revision? And I think you have to look to New World crops. So things like sunflower um, isn't much different than the wild form. Um, North American blueberries, strawberries, cranberries are really just um, blueberry was cultivated back around uh, you know 1900, so not that different from its wild antecedents. So there's some, some things like that, but I think this is really framing the challenge of where to go forward. How can we take what naturally grows here and bring it into domestication? And people have tried this with a couple different crops. Um, a good example is something like quinoa. And quinoa is interesting because it actually is a wheat, quinopodium, and uh, produces the grain. So this is one that may be uh, also very similar, the food we're eating, very similar to what's occurring in the wild. But I think there's a lot of room for more domestication going forward. And uh, let me add this thought, is that nowadays we have genomics tools, we can sequence a genome in a few days, we could uh, develop molecular markers in populations very quickly. So tree fruit, um, new tree fruits will always be slow. But the introduction of things like these new grains, uh, potentially other, other things that are out there, um, the survivalist literature is super cool, as is a lot of the texts from World War II where people would talk about the plants that you can and can't eat in the event that you have no food. So uh, there's a lot out there that is on the edge that uh, maybe we could bring into more intense cultivation potentially domesticate as future crops. The next one comes from debunking denialism. We are currently facing climate change, growing population, and a loss of arable land. How do we meet these challenges to provide food security for the world? Well, the big problem is that right now many places live under constant food scarcity, and it's probably the majority of people on the planet. And so we just have to think about what we would do to help them today to really think about how we'd help ourselves going forward. And it really, the bottom line is all tools on the table. And we have to be able to think about how do we survive with fewer inputs. So in the event that we didn't have uh, certain fertilizers, certain insect controls, um, other types of uh, products that we would actually use to grow the plants. And uh, 
Aside from understanding the you know issues like cover crops and crop rotation, the things that we're learning from organic cultivation, I think continued generation of new varieties through conventional breeding is the most important. How do we come up with the best genetics that have inherent resistance to abiotic and biotic stress? So abiotic being like climate and uh, uh, weather changes and biotic stress. So things like uh, pests and fungal pathogens, insects and fungal pathogens. Um, that all comes from conventional breeding. So more intense efforts in conventional breeding and then an openness to genetic engineering. Just being able to add that last trait or two to really help water efficiency, uh, fertilizer use efficiency, and protection from weeds and other pests. I think when you put all tools on the table, that's the answer for how we'll best address uh, scarcity. The next question comes from Dave. Is there any kind of plan B for the future? With climate change screwing up everything within the next 50 years. Are there drought-resistant crops? Drought-resistant crops. Oh, drought-resistant or drought-tolerant crops. Is there anything on the horizon for the worst-case scenario? Yeah, well, Dave, I think that I answered that in the previous question, but I think that you have to keep in mind that any of the solutions that can be proposed all are really constrained by time. And whether it's genetic engineering or traditional breeding, it can happen fast with annual crops. So we could make new strawberries, tomatoes, eggplants in a couple of years without a problem. Where we start to see issues with acclimation to climate change is really when we're looking at tree crops. So we have trees that don't get enough chilling hours. So a lot of trees need an adequate number of hours below 45 degrees before they'll flower. That's the way they know that winter is over, right? They measure the winter. And, um, and uh, they're not getting enough. So we have problems there. How do you breed new tree crops with less sensitivity to temperature? You know, that takes uh, probably a lifetime. So not so optimistic about, uh, about trees, but still many good options with regular fruits and vegetables. Do you have any thoughts about the recent paper by Canyon colleagues on the Zenomi R's? microRNA, dsRNA, DNA in human tissue and fluid samples. Does it in any way change our safety assessment of crops using RNA interference for endogenous gene silencing and pest resistance? <laughs> well, let me guess. Um, you probably read this on a website somewhere that they detected all of these, what are called uh, Zenomi R's. So they're talking about small RNA species that have been detected in, uh, so this goes back to 2012, with a paper where there was a claim that small RNAs, so the breakdown products of RNA or processing products of RNA, were, uh, when consumed by mice, were changing uh, LDL levels. And so, in other words, they would eat the rice, and then the small RNA was causing a change in the liver, which was changing LDL metabolism. And why this was exciting was because it said that there was this more intricate um, uh, relationship between our food and physiological function. And I thought, well, this is nuts. There's no way this can be true, but I really hope it is <laughs> because it would be super cool. 
um, you'd have to have the amount that you're taking in is so small and for it to go into the body or into the blood and circulate throughout the body and then sequester in a single organ and have enough that physiologically triggers some sort of signaling response would be very unlikely. And it doesn't mean it's not true, it just would be very unlikely. And since papers have followed up and said, well, all of these things that they're identifying, all these microRNAs, are really just artifacts of sequencing. Well, a paper came out in the last couple weeks by Kang, which is what the uh, uh, question refers to, and uh, this work they, they did identify many of these small RNAs. They were very um, not very abundant. They scanned many data sets from a series of different human tissues and, um, and uh, determined that they were artifactual. So even though they found them, and that's probably what's being reported in the uh, crazy press, uh, they are just artifacts, at least in terms of this group's interpretation. Why this is important is because many in the anti- genetic engineering realm have said that uh, these kinds of products are dangerous because we don't know what those uh, newly inserted uh, genes will do in terms of off-target effects. Now why I don't worry about that is because we eat, we consume massive amounts of RNA on a daily basis and the majority of the RNA that we consume comes from bacteria that we swallow, fungus that we swallow, breakdown of, um, you know, we have bacteria and fungus growing in our mouths all the time, believe it or not. Um, the stuff that's in our food, the critters that are on our food, and we don't worry too much about this. So I'm, you know, it's nucleic acids, RNAs are broken down like any other RNA, like any other molecule. They become nutrition. And maybe there's some evidence of small amounts that can circulate. I think that that may be true. I think there's some that you can detect um, in the bloodstream that, you know, I think is reliable. But it's likely not physiologically relevant. But, you know, I'm, I'm open to be surprised. But so far, the evidence says no. Varun asks, what initial steps would need to be taken to make GE plants more accessible and tailored towards a small home gardener? People working on a scale of square feet or square yards, not acres. Yeah, Varun, I think that uh, the big problem that you're looking at is a regulatory one, that the current hurdles are really problematic to navigate. So to approve a new variety is almost impossible and have economic feasibility for something like a home gardener. You have to sell acres and acres of seed. But CRISPR-Cas9, or at least this new gene editing technology, stands to potentially do what you're looking for. And the home gardener wants a plant that's bulletproof. Okay, they want a plant that's going to produce lots and lots of stuff without um, a whole lot of attention. So it needs to be able to survive some weather extremes. It needs to be able to survive some insect and bacterial and pathogen pressure. Um, and those things can be done with uh, gene editing, at least to some extent. But uh, the big thing still is conventional breeding. I always come back to that. Um, maybe we can have more emphasis on the home garden. That's what happened with the garden gem tomato. So if you uh, Google garden gem tomatoes, those came out of my department and uh, are really wonderful and great, great step forward for the home gardener. So I think you're still looking at traditional breeding, uh, maybe having more of a focus for that market. Garrett asks, aside from Arctic apples, 
What are some of the other areas where biotechnology will soon create products that are noticeably more appealing to the supermarket consumers, not just producers? This seems like a promising way to reduce consumer fear of genetically engineered crops. Yeah, and I think we addressed this earlier too. A lot of it has to do with uh, traits that will benefit the consumer, like post-harvest quality. But what about expanded nutrient density? What about something that can make a rational health claim that it is healthier? I think the best breakthroughs will be things with higher flavor, because even if you increase the, uh, let's say, healthy compounds by 20%, why not just eat two? And then you increase it by a whole 100%. So... Uh, My goal is to make uh, better tasting fruits and vegetables that last longer. And I think that'll, uh, and and taste better. Uh, Well, I said that. Taste better, last longer. I think that if you increase the sensory quality and make them available and expensive, that those are the best things for the consumer. Then Stephen asks, is lab-grown meat and bioengineered milk a viable alternative? How far out is it? Will it really help reduce energy consumption? (laughs) Again, you know, we're out of my area a lot, but um, I know the cost of a lab-grown meat hamburger has gone down substantially, um, like from thousands to hundreds. Uh, It seems like something that could be done in the future, but, you know, it's kind of silly because a garden burger already is kind of lab-grown meat in that uh, all of the amino acids that would go into a um, a lab-grown hamburger, or, you know, actually meat, animal, muscle, uh, cultured, uh, would have to come from some source. So they would either come from genetically engineered microbes or from plants. So just go eat the plants and eliminate the middleman. You know, I, I don't know. I think it's a question of changing our expectations. Um, it's kind of a solution to a non-problem. Uh, you have meat that's inexpensive already, And if you don't want meat, you have plenty of alternatives, and they're not so bad. Um, I know that, uh, you know, I I used to eat the, uh, I was a vegetarian for 16 years, and uh, I used to eat the the vegetarian hot dogs, and, you know, it was plant lips and rectums, you know, Uh, that was very good. Rod asks, okay, Cast 9, as I understand, it has the ability to switch genes on and off. I also understand that doing so is far more cost-effective than genetic engineering. We are in trigger bee country and dealing with a disease called Cercospora leaf spot. Is it possible to edit the makeup of a sugar beet to be resistant to the disease with this technology? And if so, how quickly could we get the seed? Yeah, so there's a lot here. All right, let's go back. Cas9 does not really turn genes on and off. Cas9 is is an enzyme that can be used to genetically engineer a DNA sequence. So Cas9 is a nuclease. It's a kind of enzyme that cuts DNA. And and what happens is is when we give Cas9 directions and t- and information of a gene to attack it will go into that gene and make a cut in that gene, you know, chop it a little piece out, and um, does so in a rather predictive and very precise way. And so Cas9 is just the hardware that makes the genetic change. With that, you can engineer plants 
to maybe, and in this case, uh, remove a sequence which would cause that gene, uh, cause that plant to be susceptible to that pathogen. Now, many pathogens, and I don't know this one, um, many pathogens have a uh, one-to-one relationship with plants in that they secrete molecules that cause the plant to be susceptible. uh, And uh, if we can knock out the genes in the plant, um, perhaps you can make them resistant. How long would that take? Well, it may take actually a pretty short time, maybe a year. You know, and and uh, how long till you have seeds after that? Um, a few years, but it seems like something that could potentially be addressed with gene editing. The big question is, will regulators allow gene editing to happen? And so I would urge you and anyone who's listening to go to regulations.org, look for the FDA and gene editing, Google, put that in their search engine, and go to public comments and write down, we need gene editing to be regulated in a smart way. It can't be like standard genetic engineering where we're adding whole genes. Gene editing must be regulated minimally, ensuring that food is safe, but without exhaustive trials. Because all we're doing is creating the same changes that it could occur by conventional breeding and very, very unlikely to have any problems. And we can test for them, but it shouldn't take years. I would like to see it happen in the order of months. Nick asks, with cannabis legalization sweeping the USA, what do you think about industrial potential of hemp? Do you see it becoming a large competitor in, say, food and textile industries? Yeah, that's a good question, too. And again, a little bit out of my area, but um, certainly it had many uses back before um, uh, reefer madness set in. And uh, with it becoming kind of the uh, folk hero of, of, the, uh, of crops, uh, it may have some new uses uh, that extend beyond its psychoactive properties. Um, I, I get excited about um, thinking of ways that maybe it could be used for fiber, and that would be a tremendous advantage because, it, it, as people know, it does grow well. And people have made tremendous strides in breeding this plant. Um, I, I don't, you know, it's, it's a tough one for me to make a call on because I don't know very much about it. Um, we can't legally research it here in the state. It's not something um, that you know, I, I keep up on the literature. But I certainly am aware of its uh, many industrial uses back before uh, people started to condemn the entire species because of a few that contain psychoactive compounds. Lucy asks, in line with the late Hans Rosen Gapfinder and Max Rosen's Our World in Data, showing improvements in human life, how soon do you think it will be possible to completely eliminate food poverty and will also require initiatives such as the one in Denmark? How much food poverty and elimination is about farming? How much is about more compassionate pricing and distribution with less waste globally? Oh, sure. I mean, I think a lot of this has to do with... um, So it goes back to the post-harvest question again. That in the uh, developing world, or I should say the emerging economies, uh, in the spirit of Gapminder, um, probably... uh, 40% 40% goes to spoilage and waste, um, never makes it to the plate. So again, post-harvest quality, 
better protection from insects and fungal pests and, uh, and rodents, things like that, very important. But I think the idea that, um, that food security and general literacy are going up, extreme poverty is going down, and I think you're seeing uh, wonderful work by lots of great groups to make this happen. Uh, helping to secure water, helping to limit disease, vaccination efforts have almost eradicated polio. Um, a lot of this does go back to food. And so, again, going back to the theme today of better post-harvest control and improved breeding, uh, traditional breeding to come up with new varieties, really important because that way we can give people um, materials that are locally adapted, that would be more likely to survive a local pest or pathogen and uh, more likely to be productive and also be consistent with their traditional food expectations, which I think we should all respect. The next one comes from Hannah. Is there a way to farm livestock in a sustainable manner that can help curb the carbon output? And again, that's a really good question. I think the big issue with livestock, and uh, livestock do cause a significant amount of carbon dioxide or carbon uh, to be produced that are greenhouse gases. And it's estimated, and I don't know the numbers off the top of my head, but it's something like um, an equivalent of all the world's cars and planes combined or something like that. Who knows? But it's a lot. And uh, there are ways to, to fix that. And one is to change... The, uh, well, probably, again, let's go back to traditional breeding. Make more efficient animals that can utilize the food more efficiently. That's one. Um, being able to um, potentially uh, come up with uh, management practices that, uh, and husbandry practices that might be able to control uh, their output, meaning, you know, the uh, uh, dietary amendments that might control the production of gas, that kind of thing. Um, there's a, a lot of thoughts on that, and it's important because the, um, the, the a lot of areas of the world are asking for more meat. So places like so China, especially, are growing many more many more head of livestock because of this increased demand. And uh, growing middle class will want more, and we need to be able to do it more sustainably. Kristen, the next one says. Do antibiotics used in livestock farming have an impact on antibiotic-resistant superbugs? Do they increase their resistance, incidence, pathogenesis? Wow, you guys are really banging around the edges of my knowledge base today, but let's uh, let's explore this. So for years, sub-threshold, um, or what do they call it, sub-clinical levels of antibiotics have been used in livestock production, particularly in swine. And this is because when you give them a constant low level of antibiotic, they get bigger. They grow faster. They uh, are, are larger and healthier because they're always having uh, pathogens potentially suppressed or maybe other effects as well. Who knows? But when you have lots of animals that are all being treated with the same antibiotics, you uh, develop a potential sources of resistance and it's been shown uh, very much that things like uh, oxytetracycline, um, spectinomycin or streptomycin, one of the two, uh, is no longer useful because of the fact that uh, resistance has been developed. The good news is that the antibiotics used on 
uh, farm animals are very different than the ones used on humans. And so that's done deliberately so we don't develop the, the presence of those resistance genes in animals which might be consumed when we consume those animals and potentially introduce those bacteria to human populations. Now it's important to note that most animals do not receive antibiotics nowadays unless they're ill. And I still feel it's extremely important to be treating animals with antibiotics when they're sick. It's a question of animal care. It's a question of humanity that it's, it's critical for us to maintain those animals and take care of them if they're sick. So antibiotic use, curb it um, with these subclinical thresholds uh, just to make animals bigger. And let's use it to treat animals that are sick, just like we do in humans. Gary Timpson says, What really is going on with Colin Bryce? It'd be nice to hear from someone other than the usual characters. <laughs> yeah, I wish I knew. Um, and I'm going to make people a little mad here. I, I've reached out to the Golden Rice folks and I've asked them to please come on the podcast and give us a update. And they basically... The first time, they didn't even read my email. And the second time, uh, they basically said, no, we're not terribly interested. We'll release news as it comes out. So, um, you know, I, as much as I appreciate what they're doing, I think they're making a big mistake by not working with those that are willing to help them promote their product and their project and it's, uh, it's, you know, so I'm, I'm a little put off by them to begin with. But here's what I know for sure. The original criticisms against Golden Rice was that it didn't have enough vitamin A or beta carotene to produce the vitamin A that um, would be sufficient for the uh, Golden Rice to work, uh, to deliver, uh, deliver a therapeutic dose. And that was pretty much true. And since then, they've made them better and better. The other problem is not just the genetic engineering. It was that rice is not one thing. And that whether you're growing rice in Bangladesh, whether you're growing it in Laos, whether you're growing it in uh, Vietnam or China, you're looking at very different expectations from the farmers and the consumers. So to make a golden rice is kind of a bad idea, especially when there are well, it is kind of a bad idea. It needs to be in many different culturally compatible types of rice. The other big problem is that uh, there appears to be a yield loss associated with the introduction of beta-carotene-associated genes. So you're taking compounds out of um, a, a primary bio, biochemical or, bio, or <laughs> metabolic pathway and funneling them into beta-carotene production. And that seems to have a metabolic cost that is reflected in lower yields. And so trying to get a farmer to grow something that's healthier for people, knowing that they're going to not make as much of it, pretty tall order. So there's a lot of uh, work that needs to be done both on the uh, improvement of the product and the genetics of the product, but also the sensitivity by which it's being deployed. 
So maybe they'll actually come on the podcast at some point and join me. Um, maybe those of you out there can say, hey, uh, Fulta was just kind of giving you grief on your on about Golden Rice never uh, accepting invitations to podcasts. Uh, I'd love to talk to them, but it's going to be ball is in their court because I'm not going to reach out anymore. Camille says, do you see monoculture as a potential problem for biodiversity? Well, I, I don't. Uh, so, monoculture is not something that freaks me out as much as it bothers some people because all farms are highly unnatural. They just don't happen that way. I mean, we're, we're talking about plants that don't belong here, plants that have been brought from other regions of the world that don't belong in our ecosystems, and we farm them to grow food to feed people. Uh, certainly... I think we're past a genetic bottleneck, and I think you're seeing more and more diversity within uh, individual crops, like corn. Um, you're seeing more wild genes brought in. You're seeing more diversity. But I think the biggest threats to biodiversity are things like the use of insecticides that have gone down in use since the introduction of BT. And that's been shown very well, that the use of BT does increase the diversity within those fields, especially with beneficials. So we need to keep thinking along those lines and always be sensitive to the uh, critters that are inhabiting our field to try to keep the diversity up. Not a bad idea. Jessica asks, will you marry me? (laughs) Well, um, okay, yeah, sure. Uh, How's tomorrow? Elvis Chapel. Uh, Las Vegas. Uh, no, no, uh, one's enough. I'm good to go. But very nice sentiment. Thanks. <laughs> X, the skeptical liberal, says, Hello, Kevin. Given the increase in mechanization of farming, how do you see the trend in farming labor continuing forward? And do you see moves towards automatic harvesting of crops we still handpick like apples? Oh, yeah. I mean, this is... Are citrus farmers Mm -hmm. dependent upon hand labor, and are they worried about reductions in the migrant workforce? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. This is a really, really important question. Um, To be honest, I think farmers are scared to death in many areas of the country, and it's really kind of up in the air in terms of what's going to happen uh, with the current uh, administration. Um, We may find that... Uh, in making America great again and removing immigrants or, you know, cutting back on rules around immigrant labor, uh, that, uh, you know, Americans aren't going to take those jobs. And uh, so it's, 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 labor is right now in short supply. Very different from how it used to be that migrant labor would come here for many years and send money home. Uh, now, different family members tend to come up here. They work very hard for a few years send the money home and live very well uh, in their homeland, which is great. Um, the big issue, though, is there's just not enough labor as there as it is. Mechanization is playing a bigger role, but the varieties that we use are not necessarily amenable for mechanization. So if you shake them hard, they die, or you lose a lot of leaves or immature fruits, and you lose yield. So this, again, goes back to breeding. How do we breed plants that are suitable for mechanization? Uh, tomatoes that have genes that make uh, make them easier to break from the spine uh, from the vine. Um, blueberries, where only the blue ones fall off and the green ones are re- retained. 
um, fruits that uh, are retained on the tree until they're ripe and ready to be harvested. This is a real important area. There's also, at the same time, great breakthroughs happening in robotics and mechanization where you're seeing robots with machine vision that should be able to seek out specific fruits, assess them for ripeness just by using uh, near-infrared light scattering, and be able to pick the ones that are just right. So, there's a lot happening here. I think that you will see mechanized harvesting in the near future. Human labor is going out. It's expensive as it is and will be even more expensive in the future. And um, I think you're going to see some big changes. But it's going to bottleneck again is breeding. And can we breed fast enough and use the tools of genetic engineering to perhaps uh, assist in that process? The last question comes from Jonathan who says, Is it possible to 3D print food? Ah, very cool. Yeah, great idea. So, you can, uh, if there's a great This American Life on this, on molecular gastronomy, it goes back maybe two or three years, and the idea is, is that you would be able to go up to an ATM-style machine, press a button, and it'll tell you what you had the last few days, tell you what your friends are eating, tell you the calories and the nutritional content and how it might mesh against what you've already eaten, and then you would make a selection. And what it would be would be a printer that would put down a little, a little globule of some sort of batter or something which would be heated with a laser, and then it would print, essentially, by alternating the, the deposit and cooking, deposit and cooking, and do this in multiple layers to make whatever you would want to eat. I don't think that it would make something like, you know, rice with chicken, something like that, but I think it would, in the, in the spirit of Soylent, would... Um, like, you know, this uh, prepared uh, uh, all-in-one meal uh, would make a product that would either be a patty or whatever that you could then eat and would give you uh, sustenance without um, uh, directly harvesting animals or plants. Um, You know, I think there's a place for it. I think it's what the future will look like. And, uh, you know, people like Alice Waters cringe at this. Um, You know, the slow food movement, just this drives them nuts. But if it's about feeding more people with less environmental impact, this just may be the best alternative. So check out that This American Life episode. It's really cool. Yeah, that was a very interesting episode of This American Life. So that brings to a close all of the questions. Uh, Very good to work with you, Kevin. Yeah, and very good to work with you, too. It was a real pleasure. Thanks for all the questions, everybody. Appreciate it. And that brings to a close another week of Talking Biotech Podcast. I'm Vern Blazek with Kevin Folta saying thank you for listening to the podcast. Follow us at Talking Biotech on Twitter and send your emails and comments to talkingbiotech at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Please send your suggestions for guests, comments, or questions to talkingbiotech at gmail.com. Please write a review on iTunes and recommend this podcast to a friend. More downloads and reviews raise the visibility of this podcast and help us reach a wider audience with science. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools.
With Collabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at collabra.app. C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.